welcome again guests of ours. Some have recently moved to the area, some have been around, but have just discovered us here at North Sub. It just so happens that we have a newcomer lunch today, uh, and it's going to be a party. We've got 17 registered for this, confirmed already, but there's room for more. So if you didn't register, if you're newer to North Sub, that's okay. Just come on down the hall at the end of today's service and join me for lunch in the cafe at the other end of the building. I'd love to get to know you a little bit, love to share with you a little of what God's up to here at North Sub, and that's also a great time to get to ask any questions you have regarding what we're all about. Hope you join us. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. You ever ignore the warning signs? At the beach, your friends tell you your skin's starting to change its shade, but you don't put sunscreen on. You're texting while driving, and when your phone gives you that moralistic, you really shouldn't text while driving notification, you disable it, keep texting. My first lifetime non-A on a report card was because I ignored the warning signs. Sophomore year of college, easy class, athlete class. Right? So I'm like, I can do this in my sleep. The whole grade in the class is your midterm plus your final. That's it. So I ace the midterm. So whole second half of the semester, I just don't go. I don't read anything. I don't watch a single lecture online. One of my classmates was like, Tim, are you serious? The final's next week, and we haven't seen you. You haven't done a thing with this class since the midterm. But <clears throat> despite that warning, my approach was, I got this, I just need like an 82 on the final. I'm gonna start 24 hours in advance. I'm gonna watch the 21 lectures that I missed on double speed. <laughs> um, students don't ever attempt that. Now, in the scheme of things, who cares about a B in a college nutrition class, right? But there's a parallel when it comes to matters of ultimate importance. Namely, there's a danger that God will send us the warning light, but we'll just plow ahead as though there's nothing to be concerned about. That we'll see the red caution flag, but neglect to do anything about it. That we'll hear the action step that God's calling us to, but fail to put it into practice. May today not be such a day. Amen? May today be a day in which we hear this warning from Scripture and take it to heart such that it produces action. You turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We are wrapping up our parables of Jesus series this week and next. Today's parable comes at the tail end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In this sermon that extends from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, Jesus has been teaching about life in the kingdom, as he calls it, the ethics, the morality that end up being characteristic of people who have begun to live within the domain of God's rule and reign. And then Jesus wraps up the sermon in chapter 7 with a series of four contrasts, okay? So if you were just kind of scanning the page here in Matthew 7, you'll see there's two ways contrasted with each other. There's two trees then contrasted with each other. Then verse 21, there's two claims contrasted with each other. And then in our parable today, verse 24, two builders, right? And in each of these four cases, one after the other after the other, Jesus presents it as one or the other. You're this or you're that, right? You're on the narrow road to life 
or the broad road to destruction. There's no third road, verses 13 and 14. You're either a good tree that produces good fruit or a bad tree that produces bad fruit, verses 15 to 20. There's no third possibility. And then verse 21 and 23, you've either done the will of the Father or you haven't. There's no kind of, sort of in Jesus' scheme here, right? In other words, this is all very black and white of Jesus. After the hard ethical teaching in the preceding chapters, he seems to want to cap it off by removing all ambiguity. You're either going to put my teachings into practice because you're with me, or you're not going to put my teachings into practice because you're against me, period. If you're not all in with me, you're against me. Okay, so in fact, he's just gotten done right before our parable saying these words here, verses 21 to 23. He says, many of you will say, Lord, Lord, on that day, that day to come. Like you think that you and I are cool, we're good, right? You'll be thinking, come on, I've done these miracles in Jesus' name. Of course, I got to be in. But Jesus says, on that day, I'll say, depart from me, evildoer, lawbreaker. I never knew you. See how black and white? We're either with him or against him. So if, as we've been saying all summer, the parables lay bare the secrets of God's kingdom, one of those kingdom secrets is that some who sincerely expect that they are headed for eternity in paradise are actually headed for eternity in judgment. In our parable today, we're going to see that a determining factor in whether it's paradise or judgment for any of us is whether we put Jesus' words into practice. So follow along with me as I read. We pick it up at verse 24 of Matthew 7. Jesus says, therefore, based on what's just been said, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded on that house. Yet, it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. This is a short parable about two builders. We'll look at first at the first builder, then at the second builder, and then spend the majority of our time zoomed out for some big picture reflections at the end. First builder one, verses 24 and 25. Let's quickly review those. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like this wise man, this wise builder who built his house on the rock, Rains fell, rivers rose, winds blew and pounded on that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation, its foundation was on the rock. Um, so we're told that this dude is a wise man. The sort of wise that prepares for the future. As he builds his house, he's thinking already about possibilities of what could happen in the future. And he's laying his foundation in a place that's most likely to produce a positive outcome regardless of... What may, not, what may happen, not just tomorrow, but far down the road. Right? And we have a couple of builders in our congregation who maybe understand this better than I do, but for those of us who aren't builders, you might have had the same question as me. Why build on rock? Why is that so important? Um, so here's what I learned. I did a study tour over there. <clears throat> Where Jesus and his hearers lived in Palestine, present-day Israel, there were lots of wadis. W-A-D-I is a wadi. Okay? Um, for the mass, vast majority of the year, a wadi is dry. Uh, it's just sand, and it's the sand that you can, you can, it can be hard on the surface. You can walk on it without ma making much of a footprint, right? It seems pretty solid. But then wadis become floodplains, almost rivers during and after a heavy rain. 
So even though everybody living in every house everywhere in the region is all good most of the year, when a big rainstorm comes and washes out that sand layer in the wadi, if you've built on sand there, your house is in big trouble. Our kids' ministry actually enacted this a few weeks ago. Don't you guys love the creative ideas that Miss Beth has to teach our kids downstairs? Um, they built structures on sand using magnetiles, and then they sprayed water at the sand, and sure enough, the kids watched their houses fold up as the sand got washed out from underneath, right? And they learned that morning, and mine came home explaining to me that it doesn't matter how great the building materials are that you used. If the ground underneath your building slides out, your structure isn't going to stand. And in the parable, did you catch that's a key moment of finding out about the house? Not on a sunny day. On a nice day, every house seems like it'll stand forever, right? It's when the storm comes that you find out, right? And the storm does come, by the way. You hear me? It always will, right? Even if you've built on the most solid rock imaginable, like this guy, that doesn't keep the rain away. The rain's coming for every one of us, right? Yeah, this first house holds up despite the rain pounding on the house. Why? Because before construction began, a location was chosen where the sand could be cleared away and the foundation laid on something solid. That's builder one. Builder two now. Verses 26 and 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like builder two, a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain fell, rivers rose, winds blew, pounded on that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. If you would have looked at the two homes in this parable on a nice sunny day, you wouldn't have noticed any difference at all. No distinction in the building materials. And for that matter, there's no distinction in the strength of the storm that struck. Right? Same exact words used for both. In other words, for some time, for most of the year, maybe for many years, the two houses probably looked in indistinguishable. It would have seemed that all was well with both. It's only when the storm comes that we find out. And don't you feel so sad when you see videos of the ground falling out from under a house? I saw this one in Alaska in the news just recently. You might have seen that same video just a couple weeks ago. Uh, and, but this slightly different one, uh, this was my nightmare growing up, recurring nightmare. Right? I guess I, a, a sinkhole. I guess I overheard my parents at some point talking about how there was limestone in our area and like, or, or do we need to worry about sinkholes? And I just started living in constant fear from a young age that the earth was just going to open up underneath me someday right where I was. Uh, I had dreams about it most nights, I think. I, I would go out in the backyard and like inspect the surface of the ground each time I went to play out there, right? Now, in the 25 years or so since then, have I ever seen a sinkhole in person? No. Have I ever even known anybody who's experienced a sinkhole? No. Uh, but at age 10, I just knew that's how I was going to die. Um, in all seriousness, though, this is something what it would look like if someone in first century Palestine would have built their house on sand. It, the bottom comes washing out. But it's only the storm, though, that reveals how foolish this builder's choice was to build on sand instead of digging down the laid foundation on rock and paid for it. So we've seen that a house that stands, a house that falls, what do these represent? Right? So I want to just spend the rest of our time on seven reflections, kind of pepper through them quickly. Uh, first, a reflection on foundations. Remember, the difference between the two 
houses situation is depicted here is not construction materials, not the strength of the storm, only the location and foundation. I think the message for us in that is pretty straightforward. Uh, that the difference between those of us who will stand the test of time and those of us who will collapse as a result of storms will not be how gifted each of us were or even how much adversity we faced. It'll only be this, what we've built the foundation of our life on. You remember when you bought your first house, don't you? Those of you who are homeowners. We examined every square inch of the basement, I remember, the foundation, to see if there are any cracks, right? I'm not going to make this mistake on my first house. Whatever I do, I'm not buying a house in which the foundation is unsound. But when it comes to our spiritual lives, we conduct no such inspection. Isn't that odd that we do that? Like when it comes to our lives, which are far more precious than our homes, for some reason we're content to just lay down a foundation anywhere that's fashionable. And we say, you know, come on, wh why are you so paranoid about this building on sand? Right? Everyone in my social circles, maybe we'd say, is building their lives on financial security. Seems wise. All the people I follow on social media are building their lives on international travel. Seems just like a really great way to live. Even my Christian friends, they're all building their lives on making family memories. What's so bad about that foundation? What are you suggesting I do? Be the one that everyone rolls their eyes at because they're like, oh, there she goes. Too good for the sand everybody else builds on. Had to build by herself over there on the rock. So you've built on the sands of what's fashionable. Right? But now you've found yourself, maybe, blown about by the storms. Tossed around every time that the market fluctuates or a family member gets sick or fashions shift. So the question is, on what have we built our foundation? And what do we think is going to hold as a foundation besides Jesus? Second reflection, reflection on actions. We aren't actually told what the rock represents here. Commentators debate that, and of course, it might not be meant to represent anything. That's not how parables work, that everything represents something else. What we are told, very clearly, is that the person who puts Jesus' words into practice is wise, like the person who builds on rock, not sand, right? And that's who we want to be. We want to be the people who hear Jesus' words and act on them. Some hear and act, others hear but don't act. That's the dividing line that Jesus draws in this passage, right? So are we acting on Jesus' words? The thing is, though, it's easier to say that we're acting on Jesus' words, putting Jesus' words into practice, than it is to actually do it. Here's Spurgeon a while back. He said, the common temptation is, instead of really repenting, to talk about repentance. Instead of heartily believing, to say I believe without believing. Instead of truly loving, to talk of love without loving. Instead of coming to Christ, to speak about coming to Christ and profess to come to Christ and yet not to come at all. Have you ever been stuck in that spot? Even as a, even as a Christian. Right? Like you know what Jesus says. And on some level, you want to do it. Maybe you've even advised other people to do the very thing that you're not doing. But you can't quite get over that hump and put it into practice yourself, right? Maybe you've heard us call that the behavior gap. Uh, not an original term with us, but some of you, have you, if you have seen us use this diagram on paper, it's hard to see on the screen. But um, we all get stuck at this spot sometimes. So what we talk about sometimes is as you're trying to climb up this hill in any given uh, 
in Scripture. Right? First, you become aware of it. So down here, you're aware. You've made aware. Like, I know Jesus teaches this and wants this from me. Then the second stage is you're pondering it. You're thinking about it. You understand what it means. You're, you're considering living that way. Then third, you value it. You actively think it's important. Maybe you even believe others should do it. You're teaching them to do it too. But you still haven't gotten over that hump to actually live this way. Right? That's the behavior gap. It's, it's hard sometimes to get up over that hill. Right? You think it's true, but you're not prioritizing. Right? And you haven't gotten to those stages of prioritizing and owning it for yourself. We all get stuck there sometimes. Um, here at North Sub, we've commended that in such a moment, when you find yourself here at phase three, and what may be the action step for somebody here today, is that this is the moment to say, hey, I'm stuck. Can somebody take me by the hand and just walk me over this hill to where I'll now prioritize it and even own it? Can you be that for me? Can you take me by the hand and, and walk me there? The tough thing, though, is it's hard to do that kind of work, the, like arm-in-arm -arm type of work, if, only, if you only see somebody on Sunday morning, right? This worship service isn't really geared for that type of work, right? So that's why the launch of our life groups happens this time of year, and especially our growth groups, so that those can be places where people are grabbing each other by the hand and saying, hey, I, I've needed this hand before myself. I'm happy to walk you through this one so you can put into practice what you already believe in theory. I know you believe it. I know you want this anyway. Help me. I'll, I'll take you by the hand and walk you over this hill. We'll do it together. And there's an urgency about this, uh, getting over that hill. Because the one stuck here at stage three indefinitely is the hearer of Jesus' words who isn't putting it into practice, right? And as such is called by Jesus a fool. on authority. I bring up authority here because in one sense it's crazy for Jesus to talk the way he does in this passage. Can you imagine how unbelievably arrogant we'd find it if a pastor talked like this today? Like we'd understand if Jesus framed this, anyone who doesn't put God's words into practice is a fool. But for a first century Palestinian carpenter to suggest that all humanity should be sorted into two groups based on whether they put into practice what he teaches, what he says. Doesn't that seem like an ego trip? Unless he is who he says he was. Unless back in verse 21 when he talked about doing the will of the Father in heaven, if you scan back there, unless he meant at that time that his words, his own words, were equivalent to and interchangeable with the revelation of the will of the Father in heaven. And and if he was right. Sometimes I think those of us, even who have been Christians for a long time, can slip into thinking of Jesus as though he'd be walking around among us today saying something like, hey, listen, I'm just here to be a resource for you. In case anything I'm saying happens to work for you and you happen to find some of what I'm saying helpful. If it's not convenient, listen, I get it. This isn't for everybody. We maybe picture him being that way. But in reality, Jesus was and is moving in the midst of humanity, holding a red marker and saying over and over again, like, here's the line. If you're on this side, I got to tell you disaster's coming. Right? If you're on this other side, you're safe. And the only criteria that determines which side of the line you're on is how do you respond to what I say. So have we acknowledged the absolute authority of Jesus' words over our lives? I can't say it better maybe than Jared Wilson 
He says, if you only live once, it might make sense to live by bread alone. But if life goes on, even after the death of the perishable body, it makes more sense to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you will live according to my words, Jesus says, as if I'm the one who knows the way life really is, as if I, in fact, am the center of the universe, you'll be prepared when devastation comes. It's his authority. Fourth reflection on adversity. We saw in the parable, we only find out about ourselves when adversity hits, storms come, storms are coming for all of us. In fact, some of Jesus' words elsewhere seem to read as though he's suggesting his followers will face more storms than those who don't follow him. Some of those storms precisely because we're Christians. And you, you've lived that. Right? I was confused my first few years pastoring here. My mindset, to be honest with you, coming into a pastoral position on Chicago's North Shore was, okay, this is a place where there are few real storms. What I've learned in spending time with you all the last seven years is that Though, yes, some of our storms where we live may be first world storms, so to speak, there are real storms that you all are in the midst of. And if you're just getting to know our church family, uh, just so you know, there aren't many folks in this congregation waltzing through life. And if it seems like we are, I'd encourage you to jump in a life group or a growth group this fall. And what you'll find out quickly is, oh, 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 people are hurting. People are struggling. People have been put through the ringer. Storms are beating on our houses here. But it's the storms that reveal the quality of the foundation. If we made sloppy decisions during the construction process, we won't have fooled anybody. God certainly has never been fooled. And the rains will bring it all out in the open for all to see, for better or for worse. And so, and I guess the question here then on this adversity point is, given that the storms are inevitable, they're coming no matter what kind of house you got. And uh, given that humans are born for trouble, just as surely as sparks fly upward, that's Job 5, are we treating storms as an annoyance or as an opportunity to bring glory to God? Like, are we punching against the wind in frustration day after day to try to keep all adversity at bay as though we should be living storm-free days and we're resentful of God when it's not storm-free? Or are we sheltering inside the secure home we found in Christ, knowing that God won't allow any storms into our lives that he didn't sign off on for our good and his glory. And then in that place of shelter, as we hear the wind howling and the rain beating on the roof, using our storms as a reminder to keep building on solid foundation. Fifth, on self-deception. Before I even started preaching today, some of you already said to yourselves in your heart, that's me. When we first read the passage, you knew it right away. You said, I'm the build on sand guy. I didn't even have to explain it. You just knew because you've had these thoughts, maybe even this week. Why, when the slightest thing goes wrong, am I unable to function? Why do the smallest storms seem to shake me to my core? You're already thinking that way. And so if that's what you were thinking when you read this parable, um, that was the Holy Spirit working in you. That's the point of what parables are meant to do. And this parable did its job in your heart, right? The warning performed its function. And now as you turn to Christ this morning and as you begin to let him build a new life on solid ground, God just used these words of scripture to rescue you. But there are others maybe. 
who haven't had any such thought this morning, that they'd be among those whose houses are built on sand, who are utterly self-deceived. And let me say it again this way. There are always some of those on the wrong side of the line who think they're on the right side of the line. R.T. France points out what Jesus has been doing in Matthew 7 as he's, Jesus has narrowed the target tighter and tighter and tighter in this sequence of contrasts, right? So in this first one, back in verses 13 and 14 uh, about the two ways, Jesus effectively said, some are in and some are out. And in the second one, verses 15 to 20, Jesus effectively said, okay, but among those who are out, there are some pretending to be in. And in this third one, about the two claims, Jesus said, hey, there are some who genuinely think that they're in, even though they're out, even though they're not. And now in this fourth one, the two builders, our parable for today, Jesus has said, among those who are considered to be in, that smallest circle, the hearers of my words, even in that smallest circle, some respond and others don't. So are we sure that we're in? We can't have Christ without Christ's works. So let's flip that coin and look at the other side. Six reflection on something confusing. If the whole thrust here is about action, as I've been proposing it is, how we can't have Christ without Christ's works, we maybe then can be empathetic to some of those who wrongly think they're in. Hear me out. After all, some of those who think they're in have actions. And isn't that what this parable calls for? So like, follow this with me from the words immediately preceding our parable. Jesus, back in verses 21 and now in 24 at the beginning of our parable. He says, what's important is that you do things in my name. Doing things in my name, really important. So then we can say some in response in verse 22 are like, oh, yay, we did do things in your name. But then in verse 23, Jesus says, no, you're out. What's going on here? Confusing? The key here is in these words, right? I never knew you. We can't lose sight of those words as we consider the parable that we considered in verses 24 to 28, the parable that follows those words, right? That this verse 23 is the context of the therefore that started our parable. Jared Wilson, again, sums it up well. And there's the difficult truth to sort out in the midst of hard work. It's not our hard works that save, but Jesus' hard works. It's apparently possible to do a whole bunch of stuff in Jesus' name that has no real connection to him whatsoever. In other words, the context of our parable, if we zoom out from the parable to what just preceded it, that clarifies that just as we can't have Christ without his works, we can't. But it also does no good to have his works without Christ. To willpower our way into following his moral code without vital connection to him leaves us no more safe from the storms than we were at the outset. The fundamental question here is, are we known by Jesus and do we know him? Do we have that vital relational connection? Otherwise, it's just empty words. Finally, seventh, a reflection on eternity. In our parable, the two final outcomes are extreme, right? Dwelling in a house that can't be moved or shaken, even in the worst storm, versus collapsing with a great crash. The collapse of the house on the sand is another way of depicting what Jesus has already been pleading with his hearers about throughout this chapter. Look at it. He's already talked about destruction. Uh, Maybe we don't have that there. 
He's talked about destruction if you look back to verse 13. He's talked about uh, being cut down and burned, verse 19. Being excluded from the kingdom of heaven, verses 21 and 23. And now in verse 27, he talks about the total collapse of the house. There's no middle ground held out. No third outcome for those who are kind of sort of fans of Jesus. Kind of casual followers of him. It's let Jesus call the shots. Or the only other possibility he holds out is to spend eternity in in what he elsewhere calls hell. And he's coming at it using metaphor after metaphor in chapter 7 to plead with us, hey, don't choose the path that leads to collapse. Be rescued from it while you still can. So that's the question for us, is have we considered what's beyond this life? If we've been coming to church, maybe even for some time, hearing Jesus' words but not living those words, Jesus is telling us this morning, we've been fools. Genuine connection to Christ always results in change in action. So our big idea today is this, in order to withstand adversity, let's not only hear Jesus' words, but also put them into practice. In order to withstand adversity, those storms that will inevitably come, let's not only hear Jesus' words, but also put them into practice. And there's an ultimate adversity coming. The storm to come is so dreadful that the very word adversity is just laughably insufficient. And actually, as Jesus told this parable, this future storm that I'm talking about was probably the sort of storm that he had directly in mind. Catch how Jesus said, the one who hears my words and acts on them will be like the man who built the house on the rock. Not is like the man who will be like the man who built the house on the rock. He's looking to the future, a storm in the future. We're talking about future storms of eternal judgment. Yes, building our house on the rock provides plenty of help through our earthly trials. That's important. But all these earthly trials are leading to one final judgment that will sort us out once and for all. Right? Take the most dystopian, apocalyptic movie you've ever seen. Raise it to the nth power. Right? Are, are you ready for that storm to blow in? Have you built in such a way that your house will stand that day? That's the question. And on any morning like this, a mixed group of people gathers in this place, and that's the way we want it. We want, this is exactly where you need to be this morning, wherever you come from faith-wise. But God has something to say through this text to each of us this morning, to those who have been building on sand and to those who have built on rock. If you've been building on sand, God orchestrated your life events such that you would hear this parable this morning. That you'd be warned and that you'd rebuild your house before the biggest storm comes. You can start a new build this morning in the right location. And that begins with acknowledging, Jesus, I've built, I've built on temporary things that could never hold. But you died for me. You rose again from the dead so that I could be connected with you and known by you. Uh, that I could know you. And so now I'm turning from my sin. I'm turning from those things that I've built my life on. And so now I'm asking you to transform my heart such that I will now live in line with how you've called me to live. If you tell Jesus something like that this morning, there will be a party in heaven, an angel celebration going on, as a structure has begun to be built down here that will withstand any storm for all of eternity. For those of us who have built on rock, 
as we recognized someday in the past that we were building on sand and we plowed that down and started over, as we take refuge in the shelter provided by Christ, let's not grow complacent. Let's heed the warning signs like this one that get us back on track, right? Let's take inventory to make sure that just as we began by building on rock maybe years ago, that we'll continue that way until the end. Lord, that's what we want. We know storms are coming in this life. We've experienced them and we know that there's more to come. But we also know that there's a day coming in which all of humanity will be sorted once and for all. And when that greatest of storms comes, we ultimately want to be ready for that. And Lord, we know how prone we are to deceiving ourselves, to justifying ourselves, to explaining uh, like a an inner lawyer in our mind explaining that uh, why we're justified, why we're okay, but deep down we know we are all too prone to build on sand. And so God, we pray that this morning, the warnings that you've given us in this scripture text, that we heed that warning. And that wherever we started when we came in here this morning, that we'd walk out of here uh, a people who take each other by the hand and help each other build on rock and live in line with what we know to be true in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Can we stand and respond together?